Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Good evening. May I add my welcome to David's. My name is Will Allen. I'm the assistant minister here. If you please take up your Bibles and turn back to Hebrews chapter 7. So as we come to the end of another Lord's Day, um, perhaps for some of us we've actually found today perhaps quite hard. I don't know. Um, perhaps you've thought, I know I'm here to worship God, but actually it's it's a real struggle. I, I want to know his closeness. I, I want to glory in his love. I want to enjoy him. But, but today, I don't know, perhaps like other days, it's, it's been like a brick wall. You know, I've, I've been distracted. I just, I just can't do it. The week I've had, the, the sins I've fallen into, the conversations I've had with my spouse, the, the things I've done on my computer. Or perhaps it's, it's feeling that the life God's got for me at the moment. How, how can I come to him when he's so far from me. Perhaps some of those resonate with you. Worship feels like a struggle. It's as if there's a, a great chasm sitting between us and God with, with steep, craggy sides. The bottom is so far down you can hardly see it. We, we want to be with God, but we, we can't seem to make it. And, and God has put a glorious bridge across, as we're going to see, but but perhaps some of us are pessimists about it all. Our, our eyes are stuck on the, the chasm or on ourselves. You know, I'm never going to make it across. I don't, I don't even deserve to make it. Or for some of us, the, the, the problem's very different. Rather than pessimism, it's presumption. I'll get across that chasm just fine. I'm going to jump. I'll build my own bridge. And in both cases, our eyes stuck on ourselves. And in time, we realize both fail. So for all of us, in, a, in the struggle of worship of God, he has a wonderful word for us again tonight. A word of encouragement, a word of comfort. Because once again, he's going to take our eyes off ourselves and put them onto the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're entering into this section of Hebrews where the writer, he's comparing Jesus uh, to the way of things that was done in the Old Testament. Here we're looking at the priesthood, you may have noticed that. Chapter 8, he turns to, to the covenant. Chapter 9, it's to the place, tabernacle or heaven. Uh, and then in the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10, it's to the sacrifice. So here we're thinking about priests. Now, if you remember last week, the writer uh, has taken Psalm 110. That's the psalm we've just sung. Uh, a psalm that has God promising another priest, but this time in the order of Melchizedek. And he started to delve into it and how it relates uh, to Jesus. Now, last week we saw how glorious and great Melchizedek was, all pointing forward to Jesus. And now he starts to work out, well, w what that means for the old way of doing things. And his stark conclusion is it there in verse 18. A former commandment, that is the, the, the commandments about the priesthood, is set aside. The old is set aside. Now, now that is a huge thing to say. 
Okay, because to say that the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood set up by God through Moses in the early books of the Bible, to say that is set aside, well, that is huge. To to our ears, 2,000 years after Jesus, it might seem uh, pretty normal. But but that was the the heart of Israelite worship. It was at the heart of, of, of worship of God himself. Well, setting aside this, that... That's setting aside the way of getting to God. The ancient tradition of the people. It's a little bit like someone saying to us, you know, going to church, trusting in Jesus. That's been set aside now. There's now a new way of doing that. Don't do that. It's gone. Same God, but a new way. Now we'll see that no no one's ever going to say that. But you get the point. It sends a huge shockwave through a community. Especially if they were, if they were Jews or if they knew their Old Testament, you can't read Exodus or Leviticus and not realize the centrality of the priesthood and what they did for God's people. And yet the writer can say the old, it's set aside. Well, how does he get to that conclusion? Well, it's all because God promised another kind of priest, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? He's saying, if the old was all good, if it worked perfectly, then why did God promise another? Psalm 110 is in our Bibles that promises another. Well, why? And the writer wants to make it really clear, this order of Melchizedek, it really is another kind of priest. We saw that last week with the way Abraham honored Melchizedek and his, his eternal quality. He really is more glorious and much greater. And here we see it again because Jesus, who this is all about, he's from the tribe of Judah. He's not even from Levi. So verse 16, it's not based on bodily descent. That is, he's from the wrong tribe, but the power of an indestructible life. It really is different. So why? Why does God promise this other kind? Well, the answer is that the old couldn't make people perfect. It's there in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable, implying it wasn't, And then in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. There it is. The old way is set aside because it it couldn't make perfect. In verse 18, because it's imperfect, in the end, it's actually weak and useless. What, What couldn't the old priesthood do? It could never actually make us perfect. Or to put it differently, it could never establish firm and permanent grounds for us to be with God's. We, we need a perfect, established, strong bridge to get us over that chasm. Uh, but this was not it. The whole system couldn't do it. The priesthood and the law, the sacrifices and the temple, it could never take away our sin and perfect us in such a way that we might fully draw near to God. It couldn't wash our inner person of sin. It couldn't make us children of the Most High. In short, it could not save us. Now, in later chapters, we'll see the the failings of the tabernacle and the sacrifice. But here it's the priesthood. And in chapter 5, if you remember back a few weeks, we saw the priests, they're sinful. They have to offer sacrifices for themselves again and again. For themselves first and then for others. They never, they never stood in God's presence in full confidence 
and purity. They also kept on changing. We see that in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So their, their sin not, not only meant they were offering sacrifices, but also uh, meant they died. There's a, there's a temporary, there's a limited nature to it all. It's imperfect, and so it cannot perfect us. It could never cross that chasm fully and permanently. It was weak. Now, it's important to say that doesn't mean it did nothing, okay? Just, just read your Old Testaments, and you'll see it did something. The priests did enter the Holy of Holies, and they did enter with all the names of the tribes written on stones strapped to them, symbolizing everyone entering and drawing near. But it was so limited. It was limited in time. It was only for a moment. It was limited in closeness. Yes, the high priest went in, but, but everyone else was still outside. Perhaps think of the old more like a prototype, if this was helpful. You know, it, it was good, but it was always meant to be superseded. You know, if you make a, a prototype electric car, say, it works, but I know it's short on battery life, it rusts quickly. Well, when the real thing comes out, you, you ditch the old. It was limited, so in the end, weak and useless. It's ready for the tip. The imperfect old, it's it set aside. And the Old Testament believers would have known this. Now, they were saved by faith, just like we are now. We'll see that so clearly in Hebrews 11, that the saints of old were trusting in God's promises. So they would have seen the weak weakness of the priesthood of Levi. And the believer trusted that there would have been a better one to come. This one in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, they still followed the rituals and ceremonies commanded by God, knowing somehow God was using them in faith. But they would have, they would have been ready, ready for the prototype to be superseded and set aside. Now, this is why, okay, right now, we aren't working to find people descended from Levi to be our priests. Okay, it may sound obvious, but it's important. We are not trying to reestablish the Jewish temple, to get the priests back to work making sacrifices for us. We're not, we're not encouraging Jews to reestablish their priests back across the world. Now, you could read the Old Testament and think, that's what we've got to be doing. That would be to forget what Jesus has done. His coming, Jesus' coming, his eternal high priestly nature in the order of Melchizedek, not Levi, that has ended the old way of doing things. That the Levitical priesthood has been set aside for all people for all time. The thing is, but even though we know this, that the church has been tempted often to move back to ways that look like the old, you know, to, to getting a specific group of people to do priestly work again, wearing know, special priestly robes, making offerings on our behalf. You just have a look at the, the Roman Catholic Mass, for example. Yes, they believe Jesus is the high priest, but, but then the earthly priest at an altar is believed to offer again the body and blood of Christ. It's a, it's a sacrifice again. And they're reestablishing the old when it's been set aside. Even in less formal churches, you might hear someone say, our worship leader is now going to lead us into the presence of God. There it is. It's language that takes us back to the old priesthood. And I think it lurks in our, all our hearts, perhaps, that feeling that, that only a certain type of person gets to be with God. And 
And in fact, we're kind of okay with that sometimes. You know, they're the special ones. They're, they're the ones who can know God. Kind of they're the smarter or the cooler, whatever one. I'll let them pray for me. I'll let them read the Bible for me. And in our hearts, we're slipping back into the old, having a priesthood in the order of Aaron. But no, the imperfect was set aside. Why? Because our better hope is here. Our better hope is here. Verse 19. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is it. This is what we want and need. No longer the imperfect old that couldn't actually make us perfect, couldn't actually bring us to God, couldn't save us. But here we have a better hope. And this isn't a vague feeling of hope. No, our better hope is the person Jesus. Verse 25. Who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, our glorious and greater high priest, he saves to the uttermost. The real is here. The better hope is here. God has crossed that chasm. He's made the most extraordinary bridge for us. One of strength lasting into eternity, never failing, never weak. This is something I really want us to see as we get into this passage. God has made that bridge. God wants to make a way for us to draw near. He hasn't done it because someone's twisted his arm. He hasn't been forced to do it or made to. He's done it because he wants you and me to draw near to him. He wants you and me to come close, to know him as our father, to know him as our loving God who delights over his children in Christ. So he's crossed the divide. And that that bridge that spans the chasm is Jesus Christ, our priest, our interceding priest. Verse 25 again. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, we'll come to what it means for him to intercede for us in a moment. Before that, the writer wants us to show how strong the bridge really is. Our better hope is here, and it's like he's he's putting across these giant cables, you know, that, that hold up suspension bridges. Great strength and kind of steel cables wrapped into each other, you know, that can hold up lanes and lanes of traffic. And, and he's got three of these giant cables, cables to assure us of how strong Christ's priestly work is, how he really does save to the uttermost. And here's the first one. Jesus, he's our promised savior, our promised savior. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, This is Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus, he's our promised savior. So much so God has publicly made an oath. A public vow that he will make this priesthood that lasts forever. And we saw back in chapter 6, God cannot lie. So the oath, though, isn't for our sake at that point. He knows he will keep his promise. He, he'll keep his promise to have a perfect priest. So instead, it's for our sake. 
He wants us to really know that Jesus is our promised Savior. And that means we can be assured. God will utterly keep his promise to have his son as our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It's like, it's like when a, a child asks their parent, do, do you promise when they've said they'll do something? And the parent replies, I promise. It's, it's a word to assure them. God's promise, it wasn't just an idle comment or a whim or a passing phase. He has sworn an oath. He's bound himself to this promise. If he doesn't keep it, he can't be God. And knowing this, that he's done this, just gives us a window into his heart for us again. God is so set on making it possible for you and me to know him. He's sworn he will do it. He wants us to know deep in our hearts that his heart is towards us. He wants us to be saved to the uttermost. He wants us to have a high priest that can make us perfect so that we might know him deeply. He's our promised savior. Now here's the second giant cable. He's, Jesus is our, our perfect savior. Our perfect savior. Here's something that the writer has brought up before back in chapter five, but he wants us to remind us of it again. And it's, it comes after he says Jesus saves to the uttermost by interceding for us. And then in verse 26, um, in verse 26, right? And then, and cause he starts, um, in verse 26 with the word for, he's giving us another reason behind Jesus' success. And, and what is it? For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy. Innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus, he's not like the old. He isn't tainted by sin, having to constantly offer sacrifices for himself. No, he's holy. He's innocent, unstained, separate, and so exalted. Jesus, he can be our saving high priest because he lived a perfect life for us. A life of service and obedience, a life of humility, compassion, gentleness, a life that loved God, loved others perfectly. He didn't lie or steal or cheat. He didn't get sinfully angry or or want what he couldn't have. Instead, he was generous in heart, spending time with the least, teaching the wayward, warning the ungodly. It was a life of love and service. And the thing is, it was all for us. And often we see people live good lives, but sometimes we might see people live good lives for the benefit of someone else, mightn't we? Now, some of us have had uh, the blessing of, of kind and loving parents, and it's only now when we've, we've grown up and looked back that we see the way they did so much for us, for me, All that driving and washing and feeding and earning and shopping. It's all for me and my needs. As we we look at Christ's life, his life of compassion and obedience. Of course, it was for the glory of his father. But it was for his glory because it was for us. It was so that he might be our fitting high priest, our perfect high priest, In the midst of increasing temptation, even facing death itself, he kept going for us. And so in his holiness and innocence, he can enter the heavenly realms as our perfect high priest. He can come near, uh, come before our father in heaven. He can draw near, ready 
to intercede for us. That's the second cable. He's our perfect savior. And then the third one slung across this great chasm. Jesus is our permanent savior, our permanent savior. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Rather than living, than dying and another priest taking over, Jesus dies, yes, but he rises again to an indestructible life. The, the grave could not hold the giver of life. He is now risen and an our ascended savior. So he continues in office. He holds it permanently. He continues forever. He always lives. Although this might seem a bit distant, this is a wonderful truth. That, that the changing of leaders is something that often brings problems. You know, we, we've seen it, obviously, in recent politics, haven't we? But just look back through the annals of history, and, and you see it time and time again. You know, a leader dies, a good leader dies, and a bad one takes over. A, one leader with one set of policies is then taken over by another one with a totally different way of ruling. Just remember the Reformation in England. Henry VIII dies, his son starts to reform things, and Mary comes in and starts executing the reformers, then back to Elizabeth. It's chaotic. But here, we have a permanent high priest. Jesus Christ, on the third day, rose again. His tomb is empty. It is still empty. Somehow, his, his body has a different quality of life. Somehow, he is in heaven itself, alive as our priest. And that means it's never going to change. There won't be another change in priesthood. There won't be another one in the line of Melchizedek or another order altogether. This one lasts because Jesus lives. Three giant cables. He's promised, he's perfect, he's permanent. And these three things make it possible for Jesus to actually do his job as our priest. And that is this, that Jesus is our interceding savior. That's our better hope. This is where it's all been heading. Verse 25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is what he's actually doing. He's making intercession for us. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it means is Jesus is standing in heaven right now, presenting his sacrifice and so reconciling us to God. He's standing in heaven, presenting his sacrifice and so reconciling us. This is his Jesus coming into the Holy of Holies and saying to God, the sacrifice is done. My death on that cross was once for all time sacrifice and it's complete and here's the offering of my obedience so now, now let's let's bring all its benefits to our people in other words access to you his, his interceding it's it's confirming to god all that has been achieved sin has been dealt with death has been conquered and so all the benefits of benefits of salvation can pour out this is one of the key pieces in Jesus achieving and bringing salvation. It goes hand in hand with what he did on the cross. The cross first and then his intercession on its basis. Without Jesus in heaven right now, we would never be saved. His body would lie buried in the ground and any salvation buried with it. It'd be like being in courts, waiting to be set free, but the, peak, peak, the key piece of evidence sat in an office covered in papers. 
It might be there, but it it can't help unless the judge has it. But the key piece of evidence, the death of Jesus Christ is in the courtroom. He is in the courtroom, our living high priest. He is there in heaven, standing before the throne, reconciling us to God. Listen to how John Calvin puts it. Jesus turns the Father's eyes to his own righteousness to avert his gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession he prepares a way and access for us to the Father's throne. Isn't that amazing? This is the the height of Jesus as our representative, our mediator, our go-between. He stands in the heavenly places presenting his sacrifice and so reconciling God and man. That's his intercession. And our father receives it gladly. This is why he had to be promised and perfect and permanent. So he could do this. He's our interceding savior. It's, it, it's wonderful. His, his heart right, right now for us is love. He isn't some austere savior who begrudgingly helps us. He is right now interceding for us in heaven. He's continually working towards our salvation, our eternal access to God himself. And that's not going to change. Those famous verses from later on in Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is what they're about. This is our permanent high priest who's always living to make intercession, always saving us to the uttermost. There won't be a day when his suddenly his love and patience runs out for his people. He always welcomes sinners who draw near through him. He is the bridge, a mighty, everlasting, strong bridge. Because that's what this all leads to. We can draw near to God. The chasm has been crossed, and it's there in verse 19. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Jesus, Jesus brings us to God, the living God. So in our sin this evening, let's draw near. The fact that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us shows he knows we're going to keep on sinning. He knows our lives will be one where we slip and fail, where we give in to temptation, when we neglect to do what is good and right. That's why he's always there, always making sure the way is open. Don't let your, your sin and the, the guilt it might bring this evening get in the way. If you are sat here this evening, hesitant to come to God because of your sin, please know that Jesus is a wonderful, loving Savior interceding for us. And our Father longs to have you close, draw near. Draw near. And in our hardships in life, let's draw near. Christ's intercession, it shows us that we have one who prays for us and whose heart is to help us. If you're you're tempted to think, I've I've used up all my prayers. I've prayed for that and I've prayed for that. Surely God doesn't want to hear me again. Remember God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are for you. They love you. The, The Son always lives to intercede for you. This evening, draw near. And so as we we worship him together, let's 
draw near in faith. We have a high priest that intercedes, uh, sorry, that leads us into the throne room of heaven. His intercession opening up the way. As our worship leader, we together, by faith, in prayer and song, we join him. We lift up our hearts to our glorious God. May we draw near. The imperfect old has been set aside. We have a better hope. We have Jesus Christ, our promised perfect, permanent saviour, our interceding saviour who saves to the uttermost. Let's draw near through him. Amen.